Welcome to Talking Infrastructure, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by global infrastructure company ACOM. In this series, we'll be discussing the hot topics, key projects and innovations that are helping to solve some of the world's most complex infrastructure challenges. Hello and welcome to ACOM's Talking Infrastructure podcast. My name is James Banks and I'm Head of External Relations in Europe, the Middle East and Africa for ACOM. Today, we're taking a closer look at the green ambitions of one of the UK's most vibrant cities, Manchester. With ambitions to be a carbon neutral city region by 2038, Greater Manchester wants to be known for its flourishing environment as well as its economic success. There are significant challenges to this, such as road congestion and air quality, but there are also opportunities with the development of low carbon transport, the integration of new technologies for better performing buildings, and the adoption of green infrastructure. Today, we're going to take a look at how we can deliver a more livable city that gives back to its people and nature. And what can we take from the coronavirus pandemic and the lockdown we're living through to drive the agenda on greening our infrastructure and changing our behaviours to support a lower carbon economy and way of working? As always, we have a great lineup joining me to discuss the topic. First is former professional cyclist and Olympic gold medalist Chris Boardman. Since retiring from the sport, Chris set up Boardman Bikes and has built the world's first sport-specific wind tunnel. He is now Greater Manchester's first cycling and walking commissioner. Welcome, Chris. Good morning. Our second guest is from the Manchester-based property group Bruntwood. Director of Environment, Bev Taylor, headed up Bruntwood's energy business for nine years before moving to her current role to focus on environmental efforts as the business aims for long-term sustainable growth and begins its journey to becoming net zero carbon. Welcome, Bev. Hi, James. And finally, from the home team is ACOM's Rachel O'Donnell, Business Unit Director of our Environmental Liability Solutions in the UK and Ireland. Rachel leads our remediation, waste and transactions and compliance team. She has a passion for the redevelopment of brownfield land to enable green redevelopment. Welcome, Rachel. Good morning. Rachel, if I may start with you, this is a a global podcast uh, and as a global audience, I was hoping uh, you could give me some background on the city of Manchester, just to set the scene for anybody who, who hasn't heard of Manchester, if anyone is out there who hasn't heard. So a few key facts on Manchester. The main city itself has a population of about 500,000, but Greater Manchester has a population of 2.8 million. It's based in the northwest of England, for those who don't know, and it encompasses 10 boroughs from Bolton, Bury, Oldham, Rochdale, Stockport, Tameside, Trafford, Wigan, and the cities of Salford and Manchester. Manchester is famous for being the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. It was an urban prototype for the first of the new generation of huge industrial cities and it has the nickname of Cottonopolis because of its background in the textiles business. It was a hotbed of practical innovation in textiles and transport, notably in the ship canal and in railways. It's currently focused on research, manufacturing and advanced engineering, and it has the UK's second largest economy and a thriving further education and research and development sector as well. A few key Manchester facts for those who wouldn't know. Vegetarianism was founded here in Beef Steak Chapel, do you believe, by the Reverend William Cowherd over 200 years ago. 
to help those in the most poverty get a better diet and reduce their reliance on very cheap cuts of meat. It's also the home of football, which is probably no surprise to anybody. It was the first football league was founded here in 1888 with 12 main member clubs from the Northwest and the Midlands. It also had the first public library. Cheatham's opened in 1653 and it's the oldest in the English-speaking world and it's still open. It's also where the atom was split by Ernest Rutherford in 1917 at the University of Manchester and why the uh, Rutherford labs are still some of the best physics labs in the world. Thank you, Rachel. A very uh, comprehensive summary of, of Manchester's um, history, an incredibly vibrant city, but clearly with a lot of interesting facts, including about vegetarianism, which I did not know. There we are. Chris, looking to what you're seeing at the moment, um, I've seen you commenting on Twitter a number of times around the, the temporary measures that have been introduced during the, the during the current coronavirus lockdown what's impressed you what would you like to see adopted in manchester and more widely on, on a more permanent basis just to get things the ball rolling well i think in the last few weeks we've seen culture change uh, that we we won't see for a generation you know that we haven't seen for well since a war and statements like this are generally termed to be considered to be melodramatic. And clearly this is the reality now. And the, the circumstances that have brought us here are terrible. Uh, and it's a fine balance because we also need to recognise things that have changed that we like. Parents are taking their kids out on the bike, kids who are, need to be moving and exercising. Key workers are, are choosing to travel by bike. We've done a study of Greater Manchester, the data that we had available, and we know that about 40% of the workforce is classed as key. And a lot of those people are fairly low paid. We've got we've got cleaners, we've got care workers. And so a large proportion of them don't have access to cars and relied heavily on public transport. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us that they've chosen to switch to bikes to make their journeys, which are on average less than five kilometres. So suddenly you've got a perfect storm and the bicycle uh, fits that that modus operandi to get people where they need to be to make essential journeys. So we've seen at the moment of them, every mode has dropped because everybody's travel has dropped. But as a mode, cycling is now two and a half times more prevalent than, than it was before. Uh, as a mode share, it's gone up two and a half times. So this is something that we actually wanted to see happen before this crisis and now we've actually got people trying something that in other circumstances they wouldn't even have had a go at and finding that they like it. Now, we need to very quickly work out what we do with that and how we utilise that aspect of this uh, of this crisis to see the behaviour change that we wanted to see before and very much adds to the uh, decarbonisation of our society. And those discussions are just starting to happen now. It is fascinating to see the way that it has accelerated and, and changed people's behaviours. And I think cycling is probably one that people are certainly noticing up and down the country. But Bev, coming to you, we talk a lot about taking advantage of the changes we've seen how do we make sure that those the, the, the changes that have, have been embraced aren't lost? How do we make sure that what we've seen helps Manchester hit its 2038 target? And how do we encourage society to take positives away from, from what is all currently a you know, pretty negative experience for most people? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question, James. And I think some of the points that Chris raised are, are key to how we move forward with this agenda. The, the idea that we've almost hit upon some things we like by default, cycling being one, 
certainly in my my sector the idea that we're now all working in in a different way working more remotely making utilizing an awful lot more things like the video conferencing and the podcast ideas it's about trying to embed them into normal behaviors and i think in many cases we will do that by default businesses for instance will will see the the potential benefits of of operating in this way our it director produced some great stats for us about uh, the length of our meetings like probably most businesses we spend an awful lot of time locked in in dark rooms with lots of other people on average our our online meetings are taking us uh, 26 minutes and we've gone from having around 90 people a day utilizing uh, the tech to about 930 so i think if we if we look at how those types of shift will influence the way that we work going forwards i think it will be almost a natural uh, integration in some ways but chris's point about how as a city uh, we jump on this as a, as an opportunity uh, i think is going to be key to us making the most of the this almost once in a lifetime chance we've got to make a seismic shift where was manchester before the pandemic when it came to to moving towards being a carbon neutral city how was it when it came to cycling obviously chris is a big part of the work you were doing where did it where did it sit amongst other uk cities for example well i think there's a lot of uk cities that are, are well ahead and we almost just dismiss them now so oxford and cambridge we just think oh yeah, but that's Oxford and Cambridge. Um, Cambridge has got about a 30% mode share uh, by bikes. And that they had a whole community approach. Interestingly, all of the colleges and universities, they don't allow any of the uh, students to have a car. You have to apply for dispensation to have a car. And that just started from the off. And so the whole community and the core business of the of the area was involved from the off and that changed things a lot interestingly that they have done an awful lot of pedestrianization which i think is interesting or, or rather decarring the streets so rather than just having lots of segregation and keeping all the cars they've actually just said look these streets we're going to turn them over to people and if you need to make a journey in there you can but it's not easy uh, in a sense london's going the same way we don't go to london by car i'm sure the people on this podcast don't not because of any moral reason, because it's hard. And I think um, these are the opportunities for Manchester. The difficulty for Manchester is, is the infrastructure around public transport has been tough. We know the rail situation. This has a knock-on effect. The opportunity, as I mentioned earlier, is the average journey length is very short. And a third of our journeys are in a car are less than one kilometre. So the potential to do something huge here is massive. And right now is a time when we could potentially be, listen, we, we need to give people more space to move about to make essential journeys. And if they're not doing it in a car, we need to protect them. So let's do some temporary things. Let's make some streets one way so we can give one carriageway to people who are exercising or traveling to work. We can do these things in a matter of weeks uh, if, if we choose to, but we need to prioritize it. And then after we have lockdown uh, is finished, then we can say, listen, do you want to keep it? So the opportunities here to get change are enormous. And, I, and I'm very anxious at the moment because I can see, and, you know, as was just mentioned, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, probably multiple lifetimes. And if we don't use it, 
the chances are we will bounce back to using the car even more strongly as people avoid public transport. So in a sense, it's an emergency situation. We were talking earlier around the price of, of public transport. Surely there's got to be a, a push at bringing the price down so it is more attractive for people to use on a long term rather than to take the, the benefits forward. I think there's the price, but there's also the availability of public transport that goes to where you actually want to go to. So an example I had a few weeks ago, I wanted to go into an area in Manchester from our office. So I get the train into the office to do a what's your job at a local primary school in a deprived area. And I couldn't get a bus from the city centre to that area for the times that I needed. So I ended up having to get a taxi because that was the only way. And I think we need to look at what are the journeys that people need to make and then what are the services that they actually need to facilitate that rather than a timetable that suits the operators? I think we do need to have a fundamental shift in what what do people actually need to be able to move in and out of the city in an effective and efficient manner. Rachel, I I think that's a key thing. James started the conversation about talking about how livable our city is and that idea of being able to get from A to B easily and enjoy the journey with with green space and and good air air quality and so on, I think is is absolutely fundamental to that idea of of livability uh, and something we really need to grasp. Yeah, I completely agree, Bev. Rachel, what do you think the role of of business is in all of this? You know, what are going to be the sustainability challenges? Uh, I say six to 12 months time, but we're talking sort of post-lockdown to ensure that we we still drive this sustainability agenda and the economy isn't too worried about just focusing on corona recovery. I think a key factor to that is how we expect people to come back into the workplace and you know how do we facilitate that so that they don't all suddenly jump back in the cars and do it and we take advantage of the lessons and the approaches that we've learned by remote working and say you know we don't need to all jump in you don't need to get on that crowded horrible train at seven o'clock to get in for this time so I think the way in which we work has flexed and I think that will help because there won't be this push to get in for a certain time and then finish on a certain time so that'll help with the number of journeys that we need to make I also think we need to be looking more at um, I mean we've been doing it for a number of years within ACOM on the freedom to grow profile and how we we flex for the workforce of the future but I think we need to make that more bold and push that further forward and also build on some of the things that Chris has been talking about in terms of once and generational changes you know there's some pretty big things coming up in Manchester soon and we need to be making sure that when we're responding to those the the carbon um, agenda is front and central and that's what we're all focusing in on. We've talked about this 2038 target is there a, a real sense that everybody is on board in Manchester or is it a hard sell? Are people, both before and during, are we on board? Are we heading that way? Or is, is there a lot of work to be done on communicating the benefits to people? I think that's a difficult one, James. And certainly from my perspective, I'm, I'm probably not best placed to comment. I think when it's something that you live and breathe every day, it almost feels as if it's a no-brainer for everybody to, to feel the same way. And certainly from my perspective, Things like the climate, Manchester Climate Change Agency, the work Andy Burnham has been doing with the Green Summit, the sort of collective push for net zero targets and net zero reporting, that, that idea that we do need to be held accountable is front and centre. But again, that might be my perception. I think it would be really interesting to get Chris's view on that. 
because you know clearly he has a particular challenge from the walking and cycling perspective. I think it would be interesting to hear Chris's view. I think long-term goals and talking about dates in the 30s and 40s and 50s is a double-edged sword, really. Uh, I think the downside, as we all know, it's been a way to kick a problem down the road. And we talk about what we're going to do in 10 or 15 years. And I think that actually could have a value because we need to, if we link it to what's happening now, now, this is purely speculative and not, not linked to any tasks. So excuse me if I use the wrong examples. But for example, if we wanted to do something about charging people for driving or people who are polluting or, or have cleaner zones or, or a type of vehicle that we know is polluting heavily and we don't want it used, but we also appreciate that somebody has a business to run. Uh, I think we can do an awful lot of this is what's going to happen in 10 years. So you know it's coming and you have time to change. And I think that's a, a lever that we could use. And it means people stay, can sit, know it's coming. They have warning and they can take time and plan to actually make that change. In terms of the, the, the B network, for example, we said this is a 10-year plan. So people can say, okay, that's what we're aiming for in 10 years. I don't think what we've done as well as we can yet, and we're just getting on top of it, is that means that if we're going to have a 1,800-mile network in 10 years' time, we've got to deliver 180 miles a year, every year. And, you know, that's not too bad because, you know, that strips down across 10 districts and that's manageable. But we have to do it every year. And then we can focus in on this year, right, OK, well, where's our 18 miles going to be? And where's next year's 18 miles going to be? And I think when we link the long-term and the short-term goals together, everybody can go with us because they can see where, they can see how long it's going to take, and they're not forced to suddenly stop everything. And I think that that's the key, really. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that, Chris, I think. And the, the short-term, long-term view, I think, is particularly relevant to the carbon agenda, because I think there's a, a real danger there that when we're talking about targets in, in 2038, or in Broadwood's case, 2030, that if we don't hold ourselves accountable to something very short term and something that we report on in a very transparent way, we, we get to 2035 and think we, we really need to get going on this. And then that's just not going to help us achieve the goals that we've set for ourselves. We really need those short term, uh, very tangible targets in order to deliver on those longer term goals. I completely agree. We've signed up to the science-based targets and we've committed to reducing our um, carbon emissions by 20%. But it is about having those manageable things that you can see and you can easily achieve. If you do have that, you know, you need the big, hairy, audacious goal. Everybody needs that to sort of be the North Star. But how you actually achieve it is that sort of, as you say, manageable bite-sized programs along the way that all add up to the whole and it needs to make sure that all the benefits are aligned as well it's no good saying well we're going to deliver 18 miles of cycle infrastructure over here but it's not going to be connected anything to the next 10 years because then it just doesn't serve any purpose and i think getting the overall program and the linkages between it helps show the benefits and the value long term yeah i completely agree i've heard a lot about the, the greater manchester spatial framework rachel could you give me a little background on that and you know what part does it have to play the GMSF is really fundamental because it sets out how the development of 
Greater Manchester is going to come together and it takes into account all the different boroughs and really provides that strategic framework for people to say this is how and why we're going to develop and provide those longer term sets of goals. I mean, it's out for consultation at the moment and I think there's potential opportunity on the back of where we are now to maybe influence some of the, the facets that are in it. Maybe, Chris, you might have more of an insight into that at the moment. Well, I think the spatial framework, if you ask people away from this podcast, what is it? I think the, the recognition would, would drop off quite dramatically. And I think that is a shame because it's very, very important. So we need to bring it back to the fore because it integrates everything. And it's the one, well, it is exactly that. It's a framework. It's what everything should plug into and you see how it affects something else. Um, and so I think we should bring that back to the fore and make it. I think we've got at last counter in, in TFGM, we've got 13 or 14 different strategies. And so it just becomes another thing that people don't look at because we just haven't got the time or the motivation. So we need one that we get behind. I think a case in point in terms of transport was our network. And as soon as that was launched last year, I had a look at it and it was fantastic because I could see how the cycling network knits into the tram network which knits into the road network and you could see how it all goes together and i think when we started to talk about that people could see the big vision and they can see why activity is happening and then we can look at housing we lay that on top of the uh, the spatial framework and we can see where it's taking people where is the uh, the new housing going to be there's a big push now for high density housing in in the center of conurbation which is the way to go development of brownfield sites and so all of these things can come together but the spatial framework is the is the document that should do that in a sense it should probably be the only one that we talk about and does that framework does it go far enough is it ambitious enough i don't think anything's ambitious enough because everybody's scared of change um and it's a remarkable what we just demonstrated in the last month is you can change an entire culture when a threat is imminent and it's imminent to me and i'm scared just look what can be done. Just look how many people can be, get galvanised behind one topic. And behind this, and we haven't even, we've barely said the word in, in the last month or so, is a global warming crisis that's going to kill the species if we don't get on top of it. And we're not even paying attention. And that's not, that's not a fault or a blame. That's just how we're built. We're not built to think that big, but we have to. It's a clash between instinct and intellect without wishing to get too uh, philosophical about it or psychological but it is a fact and so a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about is we do the easiest thing for us right now and if we're not careful in the next few weeks the easiest thing for me to do to keep me safe is to jump in a car and then that's to our own detriment so the spatial framework is it bold enough Uh, probably not but it exists and it's something to be built on and we can start to do that now I think this is, this is really building on that, but you know, looking at what is the, the, the role of, of local and, and central government to embrace the positive outcomes of this current situation, clearly they're going to be very distracted with, with everything else, but what would you like to see from both of those elements to make sure that, that we do take some positives away? I think we do need to be pushing some of these positives. I think a big one for me is how we do procurement, and I don't think we really talk about that because from sort of an ACOM perspective, we do try and drive things, but ultimately we are responding to what our clients are requesting and how those things are procured. And I think if we really want to embed some of these positive changes, maybe we need to be looking at 
how that's done and how that's scored and what are the things that we're really focusing in on achieving through it. And that would be one thing that I would really like to see taken out of this. Let's leverage the things that we, we've seen change now on how we behave, how we want to move around and then drive that in and also look at how we can reuse some of the existing infrastructure that we've got to, as Chris said, repurpose it so that we can get more people cycling and walking, but also engage with that infrastructure that maybe isn't required anymore or has been let to lapse. I'm thinking in Manchester, there's a lot of sort of brownfield sites around and about that we could reinvigorate either as potential green space because there isn't enough of that in Manchester or as um, connectivity to enable easier move across the city. And I think that would be a really useful exercise to do. But I think, I think the one thing for me would be on um, the procurement side and how do we do that so that we do make sure that we get the sustainability benefits that we want, even if we don't necessarily know what they are, include it in so that we can discuss it and throw our ideas around and get a little bit more innovative in that space. It hits me when you say the ability to do reviews and reflect and see if we can do better and refine. And, and it's just, it, this touches on the whole aspect of procurement as well, in that we spend so long doing something and we don't take into account that doing nothing is a choice and waiting a long time is a choice and they have consequences. So if we act, we might get something wrong. We might. But if we don't act, what are the consequences of that? And we don't look at that. And we don't consider that as being a choice with significant consequences. And it leads us to spend an awful long time being worried about change and scratching our chins while bad things are happening that are costing lives and are polluting and are not working for us. And that fear of change, I think, is embedded certainly in local government and national government. People worried about the consequences of doing something different. And in procurement, it is the bane of my life now, knowing what I want to do. And to be frank, with a bike hire scheme, you can see the direction and products out there. You go, right, they would work for us. And I'm over two years further down the line now, and we're still scratching our head about how to go to market. And that's just one small example. And it's not an individual's blame. It's a, it's a culture and a process that we've built to protect ourselves. And it's actually now hurting us. And we need to get out of it. Uh, we need to be much more fleet of foot because the, the issues facing us are, are pressing and not moving is costing us more than we're gaining. I completely agree with that. And I think also one of the things that ties into that is it's comfortable doing nothing and you need to put your head above the parapet and be brave and show leadership to kind of get things moving and say, no, we do need to change this. And I don't think we're, we're conditioned in that way very well. But we've well, all... I think the way around we've... that is to make that not lack of decision-making visible and to make that a bigger threat than doing something. Now, the mechanism for doing that, I don't know, but this is how we work. We've stopped because we're scared of change. But if we can make people more scared of not changing, then we're on to a winner. Uh, and that's exactly what's happened in the last few weeks. And one of the lovely positive aspects of, of competitiveness, or to, just to give you an example of that, we said from the start with the B network that we wouldn't say, we wouldn't divvy up the cash equally per district. We would fund quality infrastructure that met a standard uh, that would ensure that it would be used. And if one district wants to do tons and one district wants to do none, then that's fine. But I also knew that that would soon become visible. And it's really uncomfortable. And so when we put the draft network map online for the public to see, what well, the biggest complaint we had was words ours. And that put a positive pressure on people to not get involved in this was actually more of a threat 
than it was to go and do something. And that's good. So as so long as you're aware of, of how the mind works, you, we can actually make it work for us. But inaction needs to be made visible is the, uh, the long-winded point I was making. Going back to, our, our, to the target of 2038, do we think that the current situation has helped or hindered that target? It's a difficult question to answer, I know. But do we think that short-term, the acceleration we've seen, is that going to have a long-term influence or is it going to actually drop off? I think, James, I think we're at a fork in the road and we, one fork leads towards a greener, more resilient economy with a stronger focus on net zero uh, and, and the overarching environmental agenda. The other fork blows a complete hole in everything around the Paris Agreement and everything we've worked hard to achieve so far. We're seeing oil prices at a 20-plus year low uh, renewable energy is cheaper than the alternatives. So I really do think it's, we've said a couple of times that, uh, during this conversation that it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You know, hopefully we will choose the right fork. But uh, as soon as we are out of this lockdown period, I think, you know, there is a real chance that we could, as Chris said, you know, all jump back in our cars, all go back into our cosy ruts. I sincerely hope we don't, but I think it is a risk. I know we've talked about bringing people out of the cars a few times, but how do we think Manchester's public transport is going to change over the next 10, 15 years towards that 2038 target? You know, What are the key challenges that we've got? It's quite a big question because I'm not sure there's a lot about it that actually works that well. I think the metro and the tram system's pretty good, but overcrowded. The rail infrastructure's creaking like mad. And the bus system sort of works, but I'm not sure it's as effective as it needs to be. Well, Manchester's a city, but but looking at, at some analysis a few weeks ago, if you look at the inner ring road just as a, well, it's not arbitrary, actually. It's quite a nice, simple line on the map, literally. Anywhere in the city is walkable within 20 minutes, if you take that. So it is a potentially a 20-minute city, and this has been used around the world as a way to get people to visualise what could happen. So if you focused resources on getting people to and from the city in a sustainable way, so a you know, train is long-term, bus has real potential for fast change, uh, and that's, obviously that's got a big focus right now, which is great. And then within that cordon, just to use Manchester as the example, you really do start to prioritise people uh, you re- you start to prioritise people moving around on foot or by bike. You make sure you give them bikes so they can do it once they arrive uh, and enable people, give them good parking, give them easy parking where they want to be, good security. Then you can change things really quickly. It doesn't always have to be. I mean, I know I'm focusing a little bit on bikes here, but it doesn't have to be. Let's get some curbs in. It can be. Let's just take the street down to people and bikes only. Uh, and then you can do that very, very cheaply and very quickly. And cheaply is going to be a thing in a few weeks' time because we know how much money we're losing. And it will be a go-to excuse to stop things is that, oh, we haven't got any money. We've got to look after things. Uh, well, actually, you can do this really cheaply if you want to. Uh, and that's what happened in, in uh, Madrid. It happened in Seville. Uh, who had a huge change very quickly because they just decided to reallocate street space. So I think these are the things that could, if we choose, with everybody just having had this opportunity to try moving around differently. And actually, it's quite nice and it's quiet. I can actually hear birds. Uh, I'm okay to take my kids outside. It's actually quite a nice thing to do rather than stressful to ride to work. As we come back, we can choose to prioritise those or we can choose to say, oh, actually, we're really in trouble now, so we can't think about that now. 
So that fork in the road analogy is absolutely bang on. As we come out of this, what is it you're going to prioritise? Uh, and I think the press can play a large part in asking that question of our political leaders and see what they say. I, th- I think that's right, Chris, but I, th- I think equally, you know, from a corporate and a, an individual um, responsibility perspective, I think, you know, we all need to do our bit as well because the, the time is now, the chance to trial some of these initiatives uh, such as shutting down streets and, and doing that prioritisation piece, you know, when is there ever going to be a better opportunity than than the one we have? So, you know, I feel this is certainly something that I'm promoting within our business and within my sort of channels of communication, that we, we will never have another opportunity like this again. And it's incumbent upon us all to try to make the most of it. And surely this is this is a great opportunity because, as you mentioned, Chris, you know, people are looking outside, the birds are singing, and there's, there's a reduced pollution. You know, I live, I'm, I'm down in London, and I'm, I live not too far from Heathrow. The noise of the planes has died down. Uh, walk down the local streets, they're a lot quieter. The air feels cleaner. This is a great platform to show people the benefits of of getting out of the cars and 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 using cycling, walking, public transport, and the, the, the much bigger benefits it can bring to our cities? Well, I, I think we stop thinking about it as bikes and cyclists and cycling and start thinking about it as just ways to go and get some exercise, which thankfully the government recognises as essential in being able to sustain isolation and to give bored kids something they can do that fits the regulations that, that we need to adhere to. And that did happen. And that's created this opportunity. And, you know, it's got to be recognised. It's hit at exactly the same time as the good weather. So from an industry perspective, because obviously I work in the, the bike industry as well, I can see that to start with, the bike shops had to reconfigure to become almost emergency service and repair centres as opposed to bike shops um, and other ones I'm involved with. You, you can't go into the shop, but you can. If you're an NHS work, you can get your bike repaired as a priority. So those kind of things are happening now. But the majority of people were a bit tentative, but now they've started to see, particularly this last weekend, other people going and doing it and realising for a large part of the population, let's face it, they're bored. They know they have a chance to take exercise and that's been prescribed and they're looking at other people and thinking, Do you know what, I'll try that. And in the last few days, the surge in repairs for people who want to go and do that has been significant. So we're seeing over a period of a few weeks that change happening right now. And communication is the biggest, cheapest, most effective thing that we can control at this moment. It's just telling people that follow these rules. And it's not only OK, it's a good thing. In fact, it was reiterated last night in the government's uh, daily briefing by the chief medical officer who specifically made the point it's not something that you can do it is something that it was it is good for the nhs if you do it and so that message combined and it's so good that it's coming from central government that we should get behind it and reinforce it and it and if there's a problem with space where people are too close together then we can then create the space for them to do it and perhaps create a space in each uh, of the 10 districts where people can go and exercise safely. And all of this embeds a way of moving around and gives people a chance to try something they would never have gone near before. They would never have ridden down a busy high street. And then we need to think very quickly about how we keep that going post-lockdown. I think part of that is right, Chris, on the communication, just how easy it is and if the roads are going to be quieter once lockdown lifts and people can safely cycle or walk into work. I think sometimes people 
don't understand just how close things are because they're conditioned to getting transport or getting in the car and actually you can walk to it and I think that's something we can take back in terms of messaging around how we come out and really focusing people in on you know what can you do differently and making commitments on that front I think you'd see a big drop then in um, in car journeys and people automatically jumping back in because public transport people may feel a bit uncomfortable because of the packness of it. But if you can walk or cycle safely, then you, you would much rather do that. Bev, when the lockdown does lift, how do you see the working environment of Manchester changing? So we've talked a lot about the transport, but actually looking to people's offices, the way people's daily routine, how do you see that changing? It's something that we've talked an awful lot about internally as office space is our core business. But interestingly, I think this change has been coming for a while. This has just accelerated things um, beyond measure. Uh, Thousands of businesses already have the capacity to work remotely, but clearly it's something everybody's adopted. Some things won't change. I think we, we still need that interaction. One of the things that we've all commented on is However great the video conferencing, teleconferencing facilities may be, it's not the same as having the the sort of energy of bouncing off others. So I think there'll always be that space and the requirement for that space. But I think it will change. I think for a while now, we've seen people want different things from office space. They want more amenity. They want um, more capacity to socialise. They want spaces for teams. They want more of a a hub and and more amenity uh, from space. So I think that is a change that was a gradual change that we'd seen. I just think that we will will see that ramp up massively when we we do get out of lockdown. Just to add to that point, the things that I found that work recently and the ones that we're, we're lacking now is people come together for creativity. And that works well when a conversation can be spontaneous in a workplace uh, and people can build on an idea. That's quite difficult even by video link. Where video links are working well is functional things where we need to report in, hear somebody's view, a more structured conversation. They're the kind of things that that I think can carry on working remotely uh, and free up a huge amount of travel time efficiency boost in that regard is massive but the creative part of business i don't think you're ever going to be able to replace people coming together so as you just alluded maybe we start to see the the shape of a workplace moving away to getting together spaces where we get together but a lot of the functional aspects can be done remotely work might be packaged up differently throughout a week to facilitate two different types of working yeah i think that's very much in line with how we think things will start to evolve Back to the decision-making point that we we all touched on earlier, you know, our own experience and talking to our customers is that where we we all wondered how productivity would would be impacted. That very functional and decision-making capability is is almost strengthened, whereas, as as you've just said, Chris, you know, that that much more creative piece is where we we need that ability to be with others and bounce off and float ideas with, with other people. So I do think we'll see space change, but I think it was on that curve anyway. I think this has just uh, moved things up dramatically. 
I'd completely agree. I think the functionality of the business is great and that's well underpinned by all the systems and processes and tools that we've got, but it is that creativity and the, the natural collaboration that you get at the coffee points and just the sparking. It is hard to get that through teams and you really have to work out your networks and have a strong existing network to be able to sort of really keep that going during these times so i think we will have a little bit of a rush back into the office because people are missing that a bit and yes i think people obviously are are missing the offices personally doing a podcast over everyone dialing in is, is quite interesting but certainly it's made us realize that it's something we can do more easily uh, and, and is and is a workable solution if i can before we wrap up just a, a final question to all three of you looking specifically at, at manchester what are you personally going to commit to to contributing to making Manchester a carbon neutral city by 2038? There's a couple of things. When you say personally, uh, just before this kicked off, uh, I spent two months travelling without a car. Uh, and I'm somebody who have done historically 25,000 miles a year. And I made a conscious decision to try not using a car. And I got to two months and I thought, I quite like this. And I was realising that my dead time when driving was huge. So even though I'd looked on paper and said, oh, it's going to take me a lot longer to go by train because I live on the Wirral Peninsula traveling into Manchester every day. But then when I started doing it, I realized the amount I was doing on a train and the amount of emails I was finishing off uh, and a couple of phone calls uh, and things that when I got home, my time was my own. So actually I was much more effective. And so just before this kicked off, I sold my car. So I'm car free now. Well, I was about to say it's been fine, but we haven't been going anywhere. But I found ways and I trialed it two months before committing. And uh, that's my personal commitment. As far as Greater Manchester goes, well, it's just keep trying to find different ways to give this mission, to change the way people travel, impetus, pace, uh, enthusiasm. And I think uh, the opportunity we have now is one that I'm desperate not to waste. There's a few things that have kept me up at night in the last 20 years. And this one, I think, is such an important mission. I'm desperate not to fail. Sounds a bit melodramatic, but I'm desperate not to fail the people of Greater Manchester. I know that if we can change the way we travel, everybody will like it. If we can just get to a point where everybody gives it again. Interestingly, in a, in a similar vein, I, I'd started thinking about my own personal commitments prior to the pandemic and had decided that I was going to reduce my carbon footprint by at least a quarter and offset the rest. Having been through the last three or four weeks, I'm not sure that's enough. So I'm going to take another view at my own stance on things. We said uh, just prior to kicking off with the podcast that working from home has been a real differentiator and Understanding how productive we can be has, has made me think again. So I'm, I'm going to look at several aspects, but um, I think I, I certainly will be looking at changing my commitment from 25% to probably in the region of 40, 50%. We as a household, we've made some significant changes over the last year or so to what we do and how we think, particularly when it comes to holidays and things like that. And we've managed to reduce our carbon footprint so far by 15%. And we're going to try and push that down to 25. I mean, I basically drive to and from the station. I probably could cycle, 
but I need to get a bit fitter to get over the hills to get there, to be perfectly honest. So maybe that's something I can be doing during lockdown so that I could cycle to the station and then I wouldn't need to use the car at all. So we're going to continue to look at that. And I think from an ACOM Manchester perspective, what are we going to be doing? I think I'm going to be setting down the gauntlet to the team next week when we have an all-hands call around what's everybody going to be doing and how's everybody going to be reducing their reliance on the car. So those who currently drive in, I want them to come up with good reasons as to why they're going to keep driving in and why can't they get public transport in or get to a station and then do the last 20 minutes by cycling or by walking. So I'm going to be working with our green team quite hard on that. So I'll be picking up with uh, Lucy Bradbury later on today to look at we can be doing locally more and I think you know we have got some big pushes and we are looking very much at what we can be doing but I think we need to be doing that more visibly and maybe doing a bit more pro bono work on that as well through our CSR program and having that more focus to it. Super thank you very much Rachel I think that's it's a really good place to leave things for today quickly thank you very much to Chris Boardman to Bev Taylor and to Rachel O'Donnell for joining me today really really interesting chat maybe we should schedule one in in five ten years and see how we're progressing but no fantastic thank you very much thank you thank you thanks james if you enjoyed this podcast then please subscribe leave a review and of course tell your friends i'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of talking infrastructure until then take care and goodbye